0: Crime CrimeStorians, and welcome back to another episode of a Crime Story Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, and I'm originally from the United States, but I moved to France almost two years ago. And when I moved here, I just started hearing these insane crime stories that I've never heard of before. So, I created a crime story podcast to tell you all about it. And just a little announcement before I head into today's crime story, I decided with life returning to normal again from post pandemic, and I'm starting school again. I'm starting my part-time job again as a nanny. I just don't have as much time to create a podcast to the standard I want to create it weekly. Therefore, a Crime Story podcast will now be a bi-weekly podcast. So after this episode, episode 14 will be available on September 9th. So without further ado, let's just hop into today's crime story. And just a warning that today's episode contains discussion of sex crimes against children and listener discretion is advised. So today's story takes place in Canada. So as always, let's start with the legal system of our neighbors to the north. So, Canada is a country founded by England, therefore the fundamental practices of Canadian law are not much different from those governing the legal system of Great Britain and the United States. Though Canada is completely independent of Britain, English common law still applies to the country. Now, some of you have asked what is the difference between civil law and common law, and there are many differences, but I can best describe it as this. In the civil tradition, a judge interprets the law in a very strict and literal way and only considers the circumstances of that particular case. Whereas in common law, a judge can interpret the law based on precedent, their own morals, as well as interpret the law as not as so strict. So that's the difference. But now let's get back to Canada. There has been no death penalty since 1976, and making life in prison the most severe punishment for a criminal there. Now, you also may have heard of the iconic Royal Canadian Mountain Police, which is a federal police force similar to the work that the FBI agents do in the United States. Each province has their own police force, or individual city can have their own police force and can ask for the Royal Canadian Mountain Police to assist in a case. So think of it as a murder happens in Atlanta, Georgia. So Atlanta, Georgia, the police department handles the case, but they can ask for assistance from the GBI, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, who can in turn ask for assistance from the FBI, or the Atlanta Police Department can directly ask for assistance from the FBI. So just think of it that way, and that's what happens in Canada as well. Now, originally, I was never going to cover this case because it is so dark, and I think it is a very well-known case for most Americans, and I do see that it has been covered in the American media quite a lot. But a couple of you asked me to cover this case, as well as my best friend here in Paris, Ariana, asked me to cover this case. And since there is a lot of information about this case, I wanted to make sure that there was an episode out there that had all of this information in a clear and concise way. I often see that the victims get lost in the whole mumble-jumble of the killers. And the killers are what people consider to be attractive. And so it makes people think, well, how can pretty people commit such a horrible crime? Well, it happens, of course. And I'm going to tell you all about it. (laughs) Paul Bernardo was born on August 27th, 1964 in Ontario, Canada in a suburb of Toronto to Kenneth and Marilyn Bernardo. Now, during Paul's birth, he was deprived of oxygen, which is known to cause in children developmental delays. And he was also born with a tongue tie, which caused speech delays for him as well. Friends of the family have described Paul as always happy, a young boy who smiled a lot, and his mother described Paul as the easiest of her children to raise, but he was not affectionate. He was very quiet, extremely stubborn, and easy to frustration. His family was a well-off, upper-middle-class family, But the family had some really dark secrets. Now, Kenneth, who is Paul's father, was an alcoholic who would often take his frustrations out on his wife. And in fact, they slept in separate bedrooms and Marilyn would often be absent from the home. In 1975, Kenneth was arrested and charged with child molestation and the victim is believed to be his own daughter. Marilyn Paul's mother was depressed about her husband's abuse and kind of withdrew from the family. She even moved into the family basement and just really like secluded herself. Paul's father's arrest happened when Paul was 9 or 10, and he didn't find out about it until he was 16. And this is also when his mother told him that Kenneth was not his real father. He was conceived during an affair with a guy that she knew from high school. This sent Paul into a frenzy. His personality changed, and he started to call his mother a whore and a slob. And Marilyn would refute by calling him the bastard child from hell. So, great family dynamic here. (laughs) After Paul's high school graduation, he went off to school at the University of Toronto, where he would go to bars and make up crazy, crazy stories to convince women to sleep with him, only to later humiliate them, and in some cases, beat them. He also had many girlfriends, many of whom were underage during this time, and he would ask for really odd and frightening, scary sex acts from them, such as strangulation, for sodomy and non-consensual acts. After college, Paul got a great job as an accountant at a prestigious firm while continuing his college side hustle of smuggling cigarettes into Canada from America. Early 1987, an ex-girlfriend of his threatened to go to police. And this is when Paul started to attack strangers in May of 1987 in the Toronto suburb of Scarsborough. On May 4th, 1987, a 20-year-old woman got off the bus, was grabbed, and raped. This happened two more times that same week. This unknown rapist became known as the Scarsborough Rapist, and this spree went on for five years. The women were all between the ages of 15 and 21, and the attacks included beatings, intense verbal abuse, and dire threats to discourage victims from going to police. And the crazy thing about these attacks is that they often took place in front of the victim's home in broad daylight and lasted about 30 minutes to an hour. Like, the Scarsboro rapist, Paul Bernardo. Had like no fear when it came to this, which is just crazy. It was very bold to do. During these five years, Paul was actually questioned by police not once, but twice. They found Paul to be credible. Paul provided samples for forensic testing and joked that there was a very strong resemblance to the composite sketch. Bernardo was released, and delays in forensic testing ensured his freedom. But Paul was never named an actual suspect, and actually another man was arrested, charged, and convicted of the crimes of the Scarborough Rapist, while Paul, who actually committed these crimes, was out free. Now, during his time as the Scarborough Rapist in 1987, Paul met a woman who would become his future wife, Carla Homolka. Carla was 17, and Paul was 23, Carla Leanne Himoka was born on May 4, 1970 in in Ontario and was the oldest of three daughters. She was described as well-adjusted, pretty, smart, and popular, but others described her as bossy, controlling, and suffered from some major mood swings. Carla, by most accounts, had a great childhood, but Carla had many hospitalizations in her childhood due to severe asthma. She was very smart, and when tested in the third grade, she had an IQ of 131, which is insanely smart. She became obsessed with true crime at a young age, but in a very unhealthy way, She once wrote in someone's earbook that she loved death and is noted as saying that she would wanted to draw dots on someone's body and then play connect the dots with a knife and then pour vinegar all over it. And she said this to someone while she was in high school, like in just a normal conversation. I mean, this really isn't lunch table talk to me. Carla loved animals and in fact worked as a veterinarian assistant, and veterinarian's technician after high school, but I did see in one report that she threw a friend's hamster out of the window and later found the dead hamster, like, in order to study it. Now, if you are a true crime fanatic like me, you will know that hurting animals is often a sign of a psychopath, and many serial killers are known to have done this. Now, Carla was Paul's type, young and beautiful, and they were both strongly attracted towards each other and fell in love. Carla later said that the first time she met him, she knew she was going to marry Paul. Carla's parents loved Paul and so did Carla's two younger sisters, and Paul even told Carla's family about his rap career. Now, from what I could find, Paul loved Vanilla Ice and purchased recording equipment from the money that he earned from smuggling tobacco to the United States. Anyway, you can find Paul's horrible rap songs on the internet if you're really interested, but let me just tell you, they're really bad. Now, Paul indulged in his lyrics and these, like, really weird fantasies, and he would reassure his friends and as well as Carlos's family that famous artists were interested in him for, like, getting a record deal or a sponsorship deal. And his lyrics were often, like, very, very grotesque, and people often speculate that they provided certain insight into his crimes. Anyway... Paul disclosed all of his sick sexual encounters, including his Scarborough rapist crimes, to Carla, and his fantasies didn't scare Carla. Like, if I was Carla, I would run the opposite way, but as we have seen, Carla was probably a psychopath. In fact, these stories of his sick sexual ways excited Carla. Their first sexual encounter involved Carla being handcuffed to the bed while Paul had his way with her. Paul and Carla entered a sadomasochistic relationship with Paul acting as the master and Carla acting as the submissive or the slave. Carla later stated that Paul cannot perform sexually unless he did something to demean or humiliate her. Paul was very controlling of Carla He told her how to act, what to wear, where to be, and when. However, Carla didn't seem to mind because they got engaged in December 1990 in Niagara Falls and set a wedding date for June 1991. But Paul was getting bored of Carla. I mean, she was getting older. She was almost 20. One day, Paul was going to run an errand with Carla's younger sister, Tammy, who wanted to go along with Paul. Now, Tammy had a little crush on Paul and Carla knew and Paul even told Carla about his fantasies about Tammy and even encouraged them. Carla and Paul had sex on Tammy's bed. Paul would play Peeping Tom with Tammy and one night they drugged her and Paul pleasured himself to a sleeping Tammy. Now, Paul told Carla that if he loved her, he would let him have Tammy. So, in a sick move, Carla told him she loved to present him, her younger sister's virginity, as a gift for Christmas and for their engagement. On December 23rd, 1990, during a party at the Homoka home, Carla spiked her sister's hammy's drink with an animal anesthetic called holocene, which she stole from her place of work at the veterinary clinic, which caused her sister to fall into a, a deep sleep. Then Carla held a cloth soaked in halothane, over her sister's mouth and nose to make sure that Tammy would not wake up. Carla later stated that she never wanted to hurt Tammy. She just wanted Paul to have younger girls out of his system before they got married. After this cocktail of medication was administered to Tammy, Paul raped Tammy while Carla was telling him to hurry up so that they didn't get caught. And every couple of minutes, she would pour more halothane on the cloth to cover her sister's nose and mouth with it. Then Paul and Carla switched positions, and Paul told Carla what to do to Tammy. I know this is very disturbing, but what is even more disturbing is that it was all being videotaped. After a bit, Tammy started to vomit, and Carla turned her on her side so that she wouldn't choke on her own vomit. They carried Tammy to the basement and put her clothes back on and performed CPR, but Tammy wasn't responding, so they hid the evidence and called 911. Tammy was taken away in ambulance, but she never woke up. She was probably dead before she even went into the ambulance. She was pronounced dead at the hospital, and the coroner noted a strange chemical burn on her face. But her death was ruled as an accident caused by alcohol poisoning. Tammy was just a few weeks shy from her 16th birthday, and Paul said that Carla owed him a redo because it went so horribly wrong. In June 1991, Carla invited a friend who was 15 that she had previously worked with to come over to her place to have, like, a fun girls' night in. This 15-year-old is only known as Jane Doe. Well, Jane and Carla watched the movie Ghost, and Carla called Paul and said that his surprise wedding gift was ready. Carla laced Jane Doe's drink with Hallison, and Jane Doe lost consciousness. Paul came home and raped Jane Doe while it was being videotaped next morning, Jane Doe woke up in their apartment and was nauseous from the drinking. She didn't realize that she was date-raped. On June 29, 1991, Paul and Carla were married. And on that very same day, another couple found concrete blocks with human body parts tied to them in a lake. These remains belonged to 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey who disappeared on June 15th. girl had been abducted by Paul and Carla, used and abused over several days, and horrifically discarded after being drugged. In August 1991, Paul and Carla invited Jane Doe back to their place, but she stopped breathing after she was drugged. Carla called 911, but then called back and said everything was alright. Jane Doe thankfully survived. On April 16th, 1992, Carla and Paul drove around looking for young girls. They passed by a Catholic school and saw 15-year-old Kristen French walking home. They pretended to be lost and asked Kristen for directions, but then pulled a knife out and forced her to get into the car. When Kristen did not return home, her parents immediately notified police. Over the next couple of days, Carla and Paul held Kristen hostage in their apartment, making her drink lots of alcohol and repeatedly raping her. They killed Kristen on Easter Sunday by strangulation and then went to Easter dinner at the Homoko's home like nothing had happened. Kristen's body was found April 20th in the ditch and she was washed and her hair was cut off. Police later thought it was like a trophy, but Carla said it was to make it harder for them to identify the body. Now, police were starting to notice a pattern and realized that Kristen French and Leslie's Mahaffees murders were probably connected. They released a composite sketch of who they thought the murderer was because some friends did see uh, who Kristen was talking to before she was abducted into the car. A colleague from Paul's work tipped off authorities that the man was Paul Bernardo, and he told the police of tales of Paul's disturbing love for violence. In January 1993, Carla left Paul after Paul had beat her with a flashlight. Only two months later, the DNA sample that was taken when Paul talked to the police in the Scarborough rapist case was finally in. The DNA had matched Paul, and he was arrested. Now, I know DNA was new at the time in early 1993. If it was tested earlier, three lives could have been saved, and many women would not have experienced their horrific It's crazy to think about and it's really sad and even today there's so much DNA that it takes forever to test and there still is a backup. There's not really like a triage system. It's first come first serve and it's just sad and crazy to think about. Carla lawyered up after Paul was arrested and was granted a plea bargain to testify against her husband. She claimed her husband had admitted to raping more than 30 women, and Carla painted herself as a victim. Police began an extensive search of 57 Bayview Drive, the apartment that Paul and Carla had shared. Detectives found a series of videotapes documenting the rape, torture, and murder of Tammy Homolka, Leslie Mahaffey, and Kristen French. Investigators searched the home for 71 days. There was that much evidence. Paul and Carla's relationship is known to be one of the best documented relationships because they videotaped everything. There over a hundred tapes were discovered at their home, including those documenting the rapes of Jane Doe. After the police left, Paul's defense team entered a apartment and found a letter in his briefcase from Paul. The letter contained directions to a pot light leading to a small attic space. It was here that more tapes were discovered of their victims. The tapes showed that Carla was far more involved than her original testimony had suggested. The defense attorney for Paul withheld the tapes from the prosecution in order to discredit their star witness, but Carla's plea deal somehow protected her. Paul Bernardo was sentenced to life in prison for the rape, murder, and kidnap of two teenage girls, but we know there are so many more rape victims, and there could possibly be more murder victims. In 2018, after 25 years in prison, Paul's parole was denied. Paul today lives in Milhaven Institution, where he should stay for the rest of his life. A lawyer speaking on behalf of the victim's families noted that, quote, There has never been an apology by Paul Bernardo. There has never been any indication whatsoever of remorse, end quote. Now, are you ready to be mad? Carla, through her plea deal, was only granted 12 years of prison and Carla still paints herself as a victim of Paul Bernardo which she wasn't. She was released in 2005 and she is said to have had a possible relationship with Jean-Paul Gibert, who is a convicted murderer in Canada. I mean, Carla really knows how to pick men. According to this article I found, Carla went off the radar until 2007 when a journalist traced her to a small apartment in Guadeloupe. She was living with her husband and three children under the name Léanne Bordales. Carla remained in the shadows until 2014, and her remaining sister, Lori, was called to witness in the murder trial of Luca Mangata. Now, Luca was a Canadian murderer who became obsessed with Carla, going as far to mail Carla's sister, Lori, body parts. Now, during the trial, Laura confirmed that Carla was now living in Quebec, having married Terry Bordalis the brother of her former lawyer. Now, Carla was very quick to distance herself from Luca's crimes and was later found to have no connection to Luca's murders. Luca was just inspired by Carla, which is sick. But anyway, that completes the 13th episode of a Crime Story Podcast. And yikes, that was a heavy episode. Now, what do you think of this case? And I really want to know your thoughts on Carla playing victim like WTF. She was not a victim. She was just as involved in the crimes as Paul. And she should be in prison for life, but she got lucky. She lawyered up and got to the police first, so she was able to have a plea bargain. But anyway... You can comment on a crime story's Instagram at a crime story pod where I will be posting images of today's story or you can comment on a crime story podcast on Facebook or a crime story pod on Twitter. My website is a crime story dot com where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story underneath the blog tab. Or you can even comment and see additional photos on a Crime Story podcast on YouTube. I have also started a TikTok under the name A Crime Story Podcast, so make sure to check that out. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please leave a review of the podcast under Apple Podcasts, it helps others find the show. Also, if you could tell a friend about a crime story, I would greatly appreciate it. I hope to see you next time on September 9th, where I will be covering a case from New Zealand. And I've actually been on the New Zealand True Crime Charts, so if you are a listener from New Zealand... Thank you, and this episode is of this crazy case from New Zealand, and it's all in thanks to you, my New Zealand listeners. So make sure to be back here on September 9th, because you won't want to miss that episode. A Crime Story is hosted, created, and written by me, Kaylin Lewis. Sources for today's episode can be found on my website, acrimestorypodcast.com. Theme music is by Ross Budgen. Additional story editing is brought to you by my father, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to A Crime Story, and remember to stay safe at home and abroad.